Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, please. By the grace of God, I want to preach the first today of several. I don't want to make it too long, but several sermons dealing with the subject of church discipline, which is a collection of those rules that the Word of God gives us and how a church is to judge its membership. And I hope to be as thorough as I possibly can and to give us, by the grace of God, a complete collection of all that the Bible has to say on that subject. I hope that you'll remember some sermons preached in the last few weeks as a foundation and backdrop for this teaching, and that is righteous indignation and sin. Three weeks ago, I preached two messages entitled Righteous Indignation, and two weeks ago, two messages on the subject of sin, and both of those are helpful understanding church discipline. I want to prepare a complete coverage of this subject so that we can have a place to go where the answers of God are available and you can find them in your Bibles by having a complete manual that lists the verses of Scripture and how they're to be applied. There are too many questions about too many matters on this subject. We've been established in this for years, and it's not difficult However, because we're facing a situation, we want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ as completely as possible, and because there's human sentimentality involved, we want to humble ourselves to the Word of God and be established in the truth. This subject creates more unrest, questions, and division than most subjects. It splits churches, it tears churches up, it creates division, hatred, and animosity, as to how sin is dealt with in a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't want any of those things. We don't want hatred. We don't want division. We don't want a split church. We don't want animosity. We don't want misunderstandings. We want to serve our Lord Jesus Christ as completely and as perfectly as possible. I want to help you do that. I hope that you'll also remember that the God that we're dealing with, the one that we read about this morning from the 68th Psalm, is a God of severity. Yes, let the righteous be glad, but let the enemies of God flee because he's going to wound the hairy scalp of those that continue on in their wickedness. You can find that at around the 20th verse of that 68th Psalm. I want you to remember that before a church had had laid out to it all the rules of church discipline, a man named Ananias and a woman named Sapphira brought a great offering to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought an offering to the God of heaven. They brought an offering to the feet of the apostles. But they didn't bring it with an honest heart, and God smote them dead in that assembly, three hours apart. You can read about that in Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. We've studied that recently also. Never forget the severity of God under either testament. Yes, He is loving and He is gentle. He is gentle and loving and merciful to the gentle, loving, and merciful. And He is forward to the forward. 
I want to read just two verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to read where the Apostle Paul told this church in the 12th and 13th verses. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Church judgment is very personal. It's severe. And it's called judgment. They call it church discipline. I call it church judgment. If church discipline is easy for, easier for you to remember exactly what we're considering, then go ahead and remember it that way. But it's called judgment. And here the Apostle Paul says that he didn't have anything to do to judge those that are without. But he had told that church what they were to do to judge a wicked person that was within. And they were to put out that wicked person, and then God would judge them on the outside. That is the foundation for church discipline or church judgment. Brethren, it's an important subject. We are the kingdom of God in the New Testament. And God hates sin. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And he that serveth God in these things is acceptable to God. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. That's Romans chapter 14, verses 17 and 18. We've received a kingdom from God, and we're supposed to have grace whereby we can serve God acceptably. And how do we serve God acceptably according to that place? With reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. That is a New Testament passage. God does not change at all. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's very important for us to be established in this doctrine of church discipline or church judgment because we're the kingdom of God and God hates sin. Our efforts to worship God without discipline and without judgment are a stench. I want you to turn over to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, and to see what kind of a mess a church becomes when it doesn't practice church judgment. Remember, church judgment, according to the two verses we began with in 1 Corinthians 5, is us judging our members that are on the inside and putting some out where God then judges them. That is one stage, the final stage of church judgment. There are stages that lead up to that. We want to cover those. We want to cover the fact that when we put someone out, our goal, our prayer, our desire, and our hope is their restoration and that glorious day when we can take them back in and they can be one with us again. That is the hope. Look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Now wait a minute. Do all of you, brethren, know what book of the Bible Sodom was burned up with fire and brimstone from heaven? Back in the book of Genesis. Well, then how in the world do we have in the book of Isaiah the rulers of Sodom being addressed? He's addressing the ministry of the church of God. The congregation of Israel. This is how God addresses his churches when they don't have proper church judgment and discipline. 
Hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, saith the Lord? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. And I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he goats. When ye come to appear before me, who hath required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations. Incense is an abomination unto me. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with. It is iniquity, even the solemn meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hateth. They are a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when ye spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when ye make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with the sword. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Amen. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. He hates solemn assemblies. He hates prayers. They're all a big burden to him, and he can't stand them, and he wants away with them, and he wants to know why in the world you're even coming here if we're not going to worship him in a holy way. But he also puts in there, come now, let us reason together. You know me. If you'll be willing and obey, you'll eat the good of the land. Isn't that great? Amen. In the same context, he says, I'm a, re I'm a reasonable God. If you'll be willing and obey, you'll eat the good of the land. I'll wash away all your sins. I'll make that red, crimson sin of yours look like white wool. I'll make your scarlet sins look like snow. But don't you refuse and rebel. I'll devour you with the sword. The mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Is it important? Amen. It's very important. And we want to be the sons of Levi, brethren. I preached that to you three weeks ago under... Righteous indignation. We want to be the sons of Levi and Phinehas. And therefore that means for you to be a son of Levi right now is to listen attentively and not end up being confused to where you have to ask questions about how church judgment takes place in the New Testament. Brethren, we're the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us that he might sanctify and cleanse us and make us holy and pure. And he wants us to look like that as a corporate body. And we do that by keeping our body pure, by putting out that wicked person, as we read in the last verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Jesus Christ walks among the candlesticks. You can go to Revelation chapter 1 and see the Lord Jesus Christ standing there with a golden girdle, his white hair and his eyes as a flame of fire and his feet as burning brass, walking among his seven golden candlesticks, he is the Lord Jesus Christ, the ruler and head of his churches. And if a church refuses to submit and obey, 
he will take the candlestick away, which is his presence by his Holy Spirit. That's why it's important for us to be serious about church discipline and learning it together. We commune together at the Lord's table, which we're going to do this evening. And we don't want to do it with the unleavened bread of malice and wickedness. It's amazing to me that there are churches, and we have tended in this direction ourselves, to be more concerned about the elements. Let's make sure we use unleavened bread. Let's make sure we use fermented wine, which has no leaven left in it. But yet, we're not as concerned to make sure that the congregation that's participating in those two elements is unleavened. Isn't that getting the, isn't that mixed up? And worrying about the elements more than about those participating. Let's make sure there's no malice or wickedness in our church by practicing proper church discipline. You know, the Bible teaches us that if we harbor sinners, then we're partakers of them in their evil deeds. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I can promise you this, all those of you that are here and anyone listening by tape or viewing this on video, that there is an extensive outline, a manual, if you will, that's been prepared to help guide you through the scriptures from point A to point Z on this subject. Many scriptures more than what I'm going to give you. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the pastor of the church at Pergamos, in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent! or else I will come unto thee quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice, this church was harboring two categories of sinners, those that were following the doctrine of Balaam and those that were following the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. We don't need to go into either of those doctrines because they're both things that God hates. The doctrine of Balaam is defined for us, eating meat offered to idols in a forward, profane way and committing fornication. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans is something God hates. As long as we're obeying the word of God, we'll automatically be opposed to something that God hates. I'm not going to go in and play games with you about the definition of the word Nicolaitan. Because you don't derive meanings with any validity that way. Church history says the Nicolaitans were a group of people that descended from one of those first deacons named Nicholas. But we don't care about that either. The point being, this church was harboring two categories of sinners, and Jesus Christ said, repent. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly. And that's a coming that we don't want, because it's a coming in judgment upon a church. 
Brethren, laxity is going to bring God's judgment on us. Do you remember? Over there in the Joshua chapter 7, the nation of Israel has just defeated the city of Jericho, and they're looking at city number 2, a city on a hill named Ai. And they wanted to take that city, but they were already too confident because of God's blessings. So they sent a small army against that city. They were defeated, and a number of men died. And the reason some men died and God was no longer with them was because a man had sinned and hadn't been judged by the congregation. There was a hidden sin in that church. Now God revealed it. And then that congregation dealt with it and dealt with it severely. And then the Lord blessed them to take the city of Ai. Joshua chapter 7, the whole chapter, is about that subject. We want to remember that because laxity will bring God's judgment on us. And then why even have a church? Why even try to worship God if there's sin in the camp? Whenever we use those words, there's sin in the camp. Those are the Lord of hosts' words to Joshua about Achan being in the camp of Israel. And proper discipline, brethren, is going to cause all of us to fear. Fear is a good thing. We're to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear. You know, children, when they're small, fear their father. And it helps them maintain their, their way in the way of righteousness. And so it is in the church of God. There ought to be proper fear to cause us all to hold fast to what he has taught us. First Timothy chapter 5 and verse 20 tells ministers, Them that sin, rebuke before all. Why? That others also may fear. That not only the one getting rebuked fears, but those The rest of the congregation fears also because they see what a pastor does to a sinning member. You know, to discipline your children sometimes in a family setting, like a devotional setting, and to discipline one of your children in front of the rest has great effect on the rest of the children also. Nowhere in the Bible can you find me disciplining children in private. You struggle, I'll I'll buy you the concordance and try to find something that ridiculous Punishment in the Old Testament, New Testament, was always done in public so that there could be some good from it. Not only for the one being punished, but for all those witnessing it at all times. Ananias and Sapphira did not go home and die of natural causes in a hospital. They died in front of the church. And the young men walked forward, wound them up in a sheet, and carried them out and buried them. And do you know what the Bible says? Great fear came upon all them that heard these things. When a person was stoned, it was stoned by a large congregation. And just think if you'd been tempted with the sin of the person that was being stoned to death, would it sober you a little? You don't even, a lot. They say today that capital punishment is no deterrent to, to crime. Ha! The Word of God calls them all liars. You can read it in Ezekiel, uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 11. I believe it is. It's because a sentence is not executed speedily that the heart of men is set in them to do wickedly. Amen. We have men that are caught dead to right. They just ought to be pulled down to the Bilo Center and done on pay-per-view television. Because I'd pay every time. I would pay every time to see a stoning. And I would make all my children sit there and watch it. I'd go if they'd let me in. It ought to be done publicly. We hide it away in Columbia. It ought to be in the Bilo Center. This cop killer that they just let off this past week, 
He'll be out on parole in six and a quarter years. There's a, there's a way to stop any policeman from ever being killed again. It's in the Bilo Center. 15,000 people cheering and stomping. You say you're a, you're a sadist. I'm a Christian, Amen. and I love the God of heaven, and sin is far worse than being stoned to death in the Bilo Coliseum. Because that soul, when it flees that body, after being broken with stones, meets an eternal God with eternal judgment. If you think stoning's bad, you haven't read your Bible compared to meeting with God. Proper discipline done publicly helps us all, brethren. We've all sinned, and brethren, I've been there, I've done that, I've sinned, and I know one thing, that if we had biblical discipline and judgment going on around us, it would sure sober us all up to be a whole lot more careful in our lives. We have a need for this subject. It's sad that we have a need for it, but we do because we're sinners living in a sinful world. There's an absolute breakdown of discipline and judgment at all levels of our society. There's no more discipline in the home. There's no discipline in the school. There's no discipline in the military. There's a complete breakdown of authority. If you do something wrong, if you're, if you're in one of those places where there's a little bit of authority left, you get your wrist slapped. Look at our president, brethren. The president we have right now, William Jefferson Clinton, able to completely escape the judgment of our nation's laws, his perjury and lying repeatedly, proven over and over and over again, and nothing done. From the top to the bottom, the little children that oppress their parents these days because no one executes discipline in the home, school, church, military, society, politics, anywhere. You can't even execute judgment on animals without being called into court. It's an absolute breakdown. And brethren, the Bible tells us about it. Second Timothy chapter 3, the first few verses. Knowing this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Men will be incontinent, despisers of those that are good, unholy, disobedient to parents, having a form of godliness in God we trust, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. And the power is the word authority. Don't get confused. It's not that no one believes that God could divide the Red Sea. It's the lack of authority in this, God, in this godliness they have. Right. Romans chapter 1 says that because men are not thankful and they do not worship God, which I tried to lead you in this morning for the first hour of this assembly, because men do not enjoy worshiping God and are not thankful to worship God and do not love to worship Him, but become vain in their imaginations, God gives them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, which include sodomy. That is the source of sodomy. The reason a man would desire a man sexually and physically is because God has turned him over to a reprobate, perverse, obstinate, horrible mind. But it goes on to add to that sin. It goes on to add a number of other things that are not convenient. And it's the breakdown of covenants. The lack of covenant breaking, it's disobedience to parents, it's unrighteousness in Romans chapter 1. And then it says, not only do they do those things, but they have pleasure in them that do them. Our entertainment industry is built around wickedness, and no one stands up and wants to execute judgment. But there was a man 
in Numbers 25 that stood up. His name was Phinehas, and he wanted to execute judgment, and God blessed him forevermore. I hope you remember. And I hope that every one of us want to be that way. Judgment is resented and reviled by the ignorant and the rebellious today. You, you preach like I am. You say one sentence of what I've said so far in this message. And the average Christian in this country will say, No, no, no. Matthew 7, 1 says, Judge not, that ye be not judged. They don't understand that verse, nor the one before it, nor the one after it, nor the chapter before and after, nor the book before and after, nor either testament. I'll give you an explanation for that verse. And it's full of judgment. It's judge not hypocritically that ye be not judged. Go look at the context. Poor people. And I'm not saying that to you. There's no one in here that ignorant or rebellious. They revile us. They revile the judgment of God. That it's a thing of the past. And that precious Jesus came along and said, Judge not that ye be not judged. Jesus is precious to me, but he's precious to me because he's Lord of heaven and earth. We need to take a stand for righteousness and holiness. The Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall be to me a people. Therefore, brethren, having these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. There's a need for it. The great and legitimate cry against Christianity, is what? Hypocrisy. Many people scream against the churches of Jesus Christ that they're all a bunch of hypocrites. And do you know what? They're usually right. Do you know we can cure that for them when they look at this church? When they hear about this church, if we practice church discipline properly. They can never accuse us of being hypocrites. Brethren, we need some basic faith as we approach this subject of church discipline of the New Testament. Let me just mention a few things to you. I'll not approve these. They'll be proven in the outline that you'll be receiving. But let me just remind you of a few of them. We start with any subject in one place. God is. That is where we start. We don't start anywhere else. I don't start with your heart. I don't start with my heart. We start with God is. We go to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's where we go. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For He that cometh to God, and we all want to come to God. I hope this morning as we read Psalm 68, and as we sang hymns, you all wanted to come to God, you wanted to be with Him, and go to Him. He that cometh to God must believe that He is That's where we start. That's the beginning of faith. That is the faith of God's elect. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. After that, God's revealed his will in the Holy Scriptures. He hasn't revealed his will in your feelings. What's revealed in your feelings is the depravity of your human heart. There is something revealed. Your feelings do reflect a body of doctrine. It's the body of lies perpetuated by Satan in this earth through your depraved heart. And it's deceitful above all things, which means you never know it. It never feels like a lie. It always feels like good and truth. 
The seed is horrible. You feel something, you believe something, you're even convinced of something, but it's wrong. And that's what your heart does to you all the time. So, we have to humble ourselves to the Word of God, because that's where this great God has revealed His will. Only a man walking in the Spirit of God very carefully will have feelings matching up with the Word of God, and even then, he better judge all those feelings by the Word of God, because... He never knows when that heart just might slip itself in there and deceive him again. So we always go to the Word of God because God's revealed His will in the Holy Scriptures. And they're sufficient to make the man of God, which is the pastor of your church and the pastor of any church, perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. Not perfect morally, perfectly equipped and prepared to lead a congregation in doing everything that God expects of a New Testament church. Truly furnished unto every good work, all from the Word of God. We don't need manuals. We don't need Robert's Rules of Order. We don't need some association telling us how things ought to be done. We don't need tradition. We don't need old men to help us. We don't need seminary training. We don't need anything except the Word of God and a willing congregation. And the minute we fudge that, we're dead. We will be the congregation of the dead, just like the rest of them that want to subscribe to the traditions of men and how things are done in the church of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Holy Scriptures in which God has revealed His will is the King James Version of the Bible. We also believe that Scripture is the absolute final authority for all church matters. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Not only did God express His will in the Holy Scriptures, we believe that all that a church needs to know on how to conduct itself and a minister on how he should conduct himself is in the Word of God. First right. Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul writes to Timothy, Timothy, this this letter that I'm writing you is so that you will know how to take care of the house and church of the living God. And if you look in this epistle, there's the rules for ordaining bishops, Deacons, there's the rules for widows, and widows indeed. There's the false doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. There's prayers. There's how the law is to be used. Bodily exercise, the love of money. Why? Amazing. In six little chapters. And you know what? There's men that have to get advanced degrees, supposedly, to run a church. And you know what? They never learn any of this. They learn everything but this. And they get into a church, and so they end up falling back on the traditions of men because they were never given the Word of God on how to take care of a church. And they were never given the confidence from another man of God that they could run a church by themselves with the Word of God. That is a blessing in itself. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We also believe that Jesus Christ gave bishops who are pastor teachers to rule his churches. I'm going to trust that you're well enough established in that that I don't need to turn you to any of the passages. But Ephesians chapter 4 tells us that when he ascended up on high, he gave gifts to men. 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, all of which have passed away, leaving the gift of pastor-teacher, and he is able by the word of God to lead a congregation and to rule it, to please Jesus Christ. A church under its pastor owes allegiance or cooperation to no man. We are all we need. We do not have any responsibility for loyalty, fellowship, cooperation with anyone. We are the body of Jesus Christ. We owe our allegiance to him. And at any church, under its pastor, with the word of God, is as high of an ecclesiastical organization as the world has seen in the New Testament. There is no higher authority. There is no benefit in inviting other elders to participate. There is no benefit in inviting other churches to help out. There's no benefit in inviting other churches to sit in conference. There is no such thing as a conference in the Bible. The only conference there was was Acts chapter 15, and there were at least 12 apostles there. So when you can or, when you can call for a council and you've got 12 apostles, I'll be there also. But until then, we stick with what the Word of God tells us, that a single church under its pastor with the Word of God has everything that it needs. And when a congregation tries to associate itself in order to get strength and thinks that they can improve upon God's word by associating, God will destroy that association. It will not bear any fruit. God condemns it in his word very plainly. I want you to be reminded that democracy is neither from God nor is it wise. Amen. I don't care what you learned in the third grade. Democracy is not from God, and it's not wise. It's a foolish form of government. It's a wasteful form of government, and it always means that all decisions will be reduced to the lowest common denominator, which is stupidity. God ordained men to be leaders, and he's always done that. Between a man and a woman, there is a difference in ability. The man is more able, more capable than the woman. The Bible tells us that. So therefore, in marriage, the man rules over the woman. Children are brought into this world knowing nothing. We don't, we don't have families based on the principle of democracy where the father sits down and asks the children what they think. I know that sounds normal because that's how people do it today, but that's not how God said it should be done. The father leads the home. He is the one God gifted and enabled to be able to lead that wife and children in a way that can honor God, because that's the way God ordained it, and profit the family far better than any other form of government. Mommy and daddy talking together like equal partners or including the children as partners when they reach a certain age is all folly. That man is older and he's a man for a reason. He can lead that family. That's the way God has ordained authority. It's always been that way. God knows in places of business, there's going to be a master and there's going to be servants. He doesn't know of anything in between. And God just ridicules it when servants end up on the horses and the masters or the princes are walking beside them, which is what our society has done. There is no equality there. God made masters superior. That's why they're masters. Oh, I've preached that so many times before. For anybody that wants a thorough teaching of that from the Word of God in about ten sermons, they can go back a number of years and get a series of messages entitled The Word of God and Authority. Democracy is not God's order for things, and we don't do things that way in the church. 
Every <laughs> sphere of human relationship is governed by authority. Right. You look at the people of God. They began under Moses. Moses took them out of the land of Egypt. Moses, one man. He didn't have a council. He didn't need a senate. There is no such thing as division of powers. That's ridiculous concept. I don't care who taught it to you or how many classes you went through to learn that that's a blessing. It's not a blessing. Show me that in the Word of God. Otherwise, it's been derived from Satan as a lie. It is not a blessing. It's a wasteful, bureaucratic form of government that takes about one-third of everything we make. Give me one despot in Washington that's got intelligence and was called by God, and he can do a whole lot better than all these meetings that take place up there. Democracy is mob rule. It's ridiculous. It's insanity. And every decision made by a committee or a mob has to come down to the lowest common denominator, which is the stupidity of the group. So we had 2,400,000 Israelites coming out of Egypt. One man. Moses was in charge of them. When that man's father-in-law came to visit him, he looked at what Moses was doing every day, and he said, this is incredible. You're going to wear out. Because Moses was making every decision for that entire nation. So that father-in-law had him set up some men that were under his authority. There were rulers of ten, rulers of hundreds, rulers of thousands. And those men were to handle all the small matters. All matters of any consequence still came to one man, Moses. When Moses died, he put all of his authority in Joshua. When When Joshua died, they put it in other judges. And for 450 years, Israel had judges. When the judges ended in 450 years, God gave them a king. King Saul was first, King David was second, King Solomon was third, Rehoboam, and so forth, right on down the line. It doesn't matter whether they were godly kings or pagan kings, they were God's men. Whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or Pharaoh, God put them in that position of authority. Whether it was Caesar in the New Testament, the powers that be are ordained of God. They are the minister of God to thee for good. We don't believe in democracy. We don't vote to find out anything. Do you know why? Because God's already told us the answer to all the dilemmas that we can possibly face when it comes to church discipline of serious matters. Now, you know what? God will let you vote. But do you know what he calls those items in which you get to vote, in which I get to vote? The smallest matters. Those are the words. And we're going to get to them. The smallest matters. That's what the church gets to vote in. Remember the example that I've always given you, which I will not leave, so that those of you who have long-term memories can relate this to my example before. It's tearing the power cord off a borrowed jigsaw. That's the kind of matter that the church of Jesus Christ gets to vote in. Because Paul didn't write to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and say, what do you all think about a fornicator who's taken his father's wife? He wrote and said, I've already judged in this matter. And as soon as you can get the whole assembly together, this is exactly what you're supposed to do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was done. There was no questioning the guy. There was no, he didn't need to know details. It was over. God has already answered them. We don't have to vote to think. There's very little study to be done on this subject except to study the word of God and see what he says which is what we're going to do. The opinions and feelings of men are deceitful and foolish. 
Look at Proverbs 16.25 with me. Proverbs chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. Verse 25, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. If we were to have a church discipline case come up, and I was to ask all of you to submit your opinions, we would have as many opinions as we do members or more. Because after some of you thought about it for a few minutes, you'd come up with a second one. That is how ridiculous it is to have committed. God's already answered, and it's not me. Pastor never excludes anyone. Pastor can't exclude anyone. Exclusion of a church is a congregational act of judgment. It's the exercise of the many against the one. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2. All the pastor does is point out what the Word of God says, and we all do it together as a congregation. Look at 21.2 while we're over there. Proverbs chapter 21 and 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Isn't that true? You, You don't sit around thinking wrong thoughts, do you? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Every way. But the Lord pondereth the hearts. The Lord can dive right in there and find out what is motivating us to think a certain way or not. This is a warning that the opinions and feelings of men are worthless. Look at chapter 28. Chapter 28 and verse 26. Proverbs 28 and 26. He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. But whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. Brethren, let's all be wise in here. Do not trust in your own heart. Your heart does not lead you toward truth. Your heart leads you toward lies. But a wise man will be delivered. And a wise man is one who does not put any trust in his heart. There's more that could be said on that. Whenever men come together and think up something that sounds good, they like it and they promote it and it's sold and bought. You can be, you can be sure of one thing. It's an abomination to God. When men have written something or come up with something together and they sell it and it's purchased and it's widespread and it's accepted by many, that means it is an abomination. Because Jesus Christ taught that because we're all sinful with sinful hearts, for something to be widely accepted by the majority proves that it's an error. Luke 16, 15. It doesn't matter how long tradition has been established or how noble it was in its origin. Anybody who tries to worship God with traditions is worshiping God in vain. Jesus Christ taught that very plainly in Mark chapter 7 and in other places. Sentimentality must be sacrificed for the glory of God and His Word. I hope that all of you in this assembly will remember when we looked into Exodus chapter 32 and saw Moses come down from Mount Sinai and find the golden calf, he said, Who is on the Lord's side? And some sons of Levi gathered themselves to him, and he said, Put on your swords. And then he said, Go in and out through this camp from gate to gate, and slay everyone his brother, everyone his neighbor, everyone his companion. There was no sentimentality involved. In fact, in order for those Levites to consecrate themselves, as it says in the next couple of verses, they had to go and kill every man his son that was involved in that golden calf. Because you can't have the weakness nor the foolishness of human sentimentality when it comes to exercising God's judgment. 
Many times in the Word of God it says, and thine eye shall not pity. Because God is being honored. If you compromise God at all for this person over here, no matter how close the relationship is, that's an affront to him. He's jealous for his his own honor and his own glory. How are you putting that person above him? So over and over it says, Thine eye shall not pity. Experience. The false wisdom of hindsight. It's blinding and worth little. You know, I see three old men that gathered around Job. And those three old men, oh, they went through, they, Eliphaz started out, then Bildad, then Zophar. And then Eliphaz, he'd thought some more since he finished the first time. He started up again, then Bildad again, then Zophar again. Oh, and by this time, that provoked more thoughts. So Eliphaz went again in the third cycle, and then Bildad. And finally, Elihu just shut them up and said, Listen, old men should be wise, but it hasn't happened here. And God's given me some understanding and inspiration in this case, so sit down, shut up, And listen to me, I'm going to teach you wisdom. Experience is not how we learn things. We learn things by the Word of God. And Elihu was given it by direct inspiration. Experience is the false wisdom of hindsight. Listen, you can go into the Word of God and find out that God calls something the prosperity of fools. That means sometimes He'll bless fools. And so if all you're doing is observing people in life, and you think you're learning something, you're learning to believe a lie. Because God will sometimes bless a fool. And if you're looking at a fool get blessed, and you think, well, that's how I can live, and God will bless me, you're violating the Word of God. And God calls it the prosperity of fools shall turn them away from the truth. God does it to turn men away from the truth if they don't want to humble themselves and submit completely to the written Word of God. Personalities are dangerous and destructive to sound judgment. That same Elihu in that same chapter of Job 32 would say, If I gave flattering titles unto men, my Maker would soon take me away. There is to be no respect of the mighty, nor any care for the poor when it comes to judgment. But righteousness is to be exalted, and righteous judgment is to be made. What is sin, brethren? I preached that to you recently, so I'm not going to go over it. It's going to be thorough in your outline. What is sin? Sin is the transgression of God's law. It's breaking God's rules. Therefore, sin is an offense against God. I don't care if you were hurt by someone's sin. Sin isn't really against you. Sin is against God. You don't make the rules. I don't make the rules. So sin is not really against us. Sin is against God. When David committed adultery and murder... I would say that he had hurt Uriah quite a bit. Would you agree with me? But when he prayed his prayer of confession, he said very plainly in Psalm 51, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Because it was God that had said, thou shalt not commit adultery, and it was God that said, thou shalt not kill. We looked at some examples of the fact that sin is an offense against God. When we looked at Cain, we looked at Joseph, who told Potiphar's wife that how could I do this great evil and sin Amen. against God? 
Therefore, since sin is the transgression of God's law, we also identify sin by the law of God. And yes, I just taught you that two weeks ago, so we'll not look up all those verses. But the Word of God tells us that by studying the Word of God, we learn about sin. Because in the Word of God, we find the law of God that tells us what we're to do and not to do. And when we cross that law, then we're guilty of sin. That's how we find sin. It's not because we were raised by a certain set of parents that thought thought something was horrible. That's just totally ridiculous. That doesn't mean anything. Do you know what's being taught today in, in families? Who cares what mommy and daddy thought? Unless it matches up with the Word of God. Always with the Word of God. Someone will say, but my mommy and daddy were more conservative than that. It doesn't matter. More conservative just means they were Pharisees. Do you understand that? If you're more conservative than the Word of God, that doesn't mean you're better than the Word of God. That is an error of thinking. That is a deceitful heart that has been sold and bought the lie. It is not. The Pharisees were far more conservative than Jesus was. Go to Colossians chapter 2 and see what the Apostle Paul thinks of those who touch not, taste not, and handle not. Now, it's very conservative to touch not, taste not, and handle not, but the Apostle Paul said it was a complete overthrowing of God and His laws. Because enjoying things in this life is part of the good life of being a child of God. I know I sound angry. I'm just angry against sin. And brother, we're not angry enough about it. God's angry. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. We go to the Word of God to find out what's right and what's wrong. It does not matter what you feel about it, think about it. If you'd never do it, if you've never done it, if you, your granddad, and your great-granddad never did it, doesn't matter. What does the Word of God have to say about it? Because that's exactly where we have to stand. The minute, the minute our compass gets one degree off. Now, when you're at point zero and you're one degree off, how many inches are you off? Not even an inch. But when you're one degree off and you're out there a ways in in the existence and life of a church, how far are you off? Miles. Miles. We can't move. One bit off the Word of God. Amen. It doesn't matter what I think. And oh, yes, I've got I'm full of ideas. Yeah, We're all full of ideas. Do you know what the Bible, we just read about ourselves? Every way of a man is right in his own. What do you think I think up bad ideas? Nope. Every idea I've ever thought up is good. Isn't that the way you think about your ideas? Right. I mean, do you sit around wasting your time thinking up bad ones? Nope. You wish everybody would listen to your ideas because they're so good. I want to tell everybody my ideas. They're all garbage. It's the Word of God. Can we humble ourselves and say, Out! I will kneel before the Word of the living God, and I will esteem it to be right regarding whatever it speaks about. And I'll hate everything contrary to it, even if it's a cherished thought that I've held for 42 years. Can we do that? We have to do it. Therefore, only God can forgive sin. We don't forgive when we want to. We don't forgive when we feel like it. We don't forgive when we think someone suffered enough. We forgive when God tells us to forgive. Because only God can forgive sin. Do you know what Jesus Christ would do to try those Pharisees? To irritate those Pharisees? 
Someone would be brought to him that had a withered hand. And instead of saying, stretch forth thy hand, he'd say, thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, that tore them up. And they couldn't even see. that. Didn't it take the same divine power to be able to heal the withered hand or to forgive sins? Because only God can do both of them. And so he'd play with them that way. But they were right. Only God can forgive sin. But they couldn't see that only God could heal a man's hand like that also. But I want you to remember that since sin is the transgression of God's law, sin is an offense against God. It's identified by God's law. That's how we find out what is sin and what isn't. And therefore, only God can forgive it. Now, Jesus Christ has earned legal forgiveness for us at the cross of Calvary. You weren't involved in that. He didn't ask you, would you like to be forgiven? Jesus Christ rose up on high and went into the presence of God by the eternal spirit and offered his shed blood. And the Holy Father accepted that on behalf of you and put into force the new covenant where it is said their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Right. Wow. I've got goosebumps that, and I'm ser- that is glorious truth. Amen. The God of heaven said their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Amen. How would you like to meet that judge? Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Yes. What do you want to do for that judge? Don't you want to do everything for that judge? Their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. He didn't ask you for that, though. He just did that for you by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Now, God forgives sin practically in a different way. Upon our confession and our repentance, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we've got to divide there. And you already know that division. And that division's not all that essential to what we're going to be studying. But here are a couple divisions. And with these few divisions, I want to close. But these are things, this is what I want you to remember and to think about all week. Because we're going to take this up again next Sunday, the Lord willing. Please remember these divisions and learn. Sin is divided three different ways. First of all, sin is either large or it's small. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. If you'll pay attention and not go to sleep and give me a few more minutes, I'll teach you wisdom. Sin can be divided three different ways. And it's not because I'm wise, it's because the Word of God has it all. And it's able to make the man of God perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. 1 Samuel 2.25. Here's Eli speaking to his two sons who were wicked priests. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. The whole verse is valuable to us, but we only want the first half. Why didn't they listen to their father? Because God had a purpose in their lives. He was going to slay them. First half of the verse, sin is first of all divided, large or small. And how do we know large or small? What does this verse tell us? It's either against man or it's against God. When you tear the power cord off a jigsaw that I loan you, that's a sin against me. When you commit adultery with your neighbor's wife, that's a sin against God. The difference between those two is huge. One is a large sin against God. One is a small sin against man. Come over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
1 Timothy chapter 1. The first division we make in sin is that there are large sins and there are small sins. And we're going by the word of God, not by the church fathers. Now the Roman Catholics have invented to themselves a cute little thing called mortal and venial sins. That means the ones they like are only venial and not so bad. Then they've got mortal sins. They're a whole lot more serious. I mean, you would not believe the little games they play dividing up sin. I don't even want to go off and chase that rabbit, but they do it. Now, we're dividing sin, but we're going to divide it God's way. 1 Samuel 2.25 was rather plain. There are sins against man. There are sins against God. One, you simply have a judge decide what I should pay or what you should pay for my missing power cord. A judge can settle it. Remember, what did the judges do at that time? They handled the small matters. The large matters, who in the world can entreat for you when you've sinned against God? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. Here is the law of God that tells us all the things that God hates and all the, all the thou shalt nots. When, you're li- when you are living by the Spirit of God for Jesus Christ, that law does you very little good. Why would you even need the law thou shalt not kill? If you're walking in the Spirit, you are filled with, what's the first aspect of the fruit of the Spirit? Love. How in the world could you be guilty of killing? The law was set, the Bible's going to tell you what all of God's commandments are for. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. That's the law of God. The law of God is made for wicked men who are guilty of large sins. Notice the way it describes these type of people. They're uh, lawless, disobedient, ungodly sinners, unholy and profane. And the types of sins that are listed there are pretty serious. Men-stealers, those that defile themselves with mankind, there's the precious sodomites, for perjured persons, for murderers of mothers. That's what the law of God was for, to condemn those kind of sins. Those are the large sins that are against God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're dividing sin in its first division between large sins against God and small sins against men. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. These are sins that are so offensive to God that you cannot be guilty of these sins and inherit the kingdom of God. And notice when it says, and they're abusers of themselves with mankind, that's also one of the kind New Testament descriptions of sodomy. Whenever you read anything written by any modern ecumenical evangelistic minister, 
evangelical minister who thinks that he can show you from the Word of God that sodomy is not a bad sin, just remember verses like this. Abusers of themselves with mankind. But what I want you to notice is these are sins against God that he hates so much you can't be guilty of them and inherit the kingdom of God. They are an offense against God. And it lists, it lists them for you. And they're similar to the list we just read in 1 Timothy 1. And so you're getting a feel for things that God has prohibited. See, there's no verse in the Bible that says you can't tear the power cord off your neighbor's jigsaw. That's just understood. That's just understood between men that when you borrow something, you return it in the way that it should, that you borrowed it. But, when, but the Lord has listed a great number of sins that we can sin against Him. Look at small sins. We've already seen it in 1 Samuel 2.25. Listen to those words again. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Now we're in 1 Corinthians 6. First verse. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Would any of you even consider something so ridiculous as to have a problem with a brother and go outside this church to the courts of our land and not to the saints that are here? Verse 2, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Verse 3, Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? The list that I was just reading you are large sins that pertain to that life. They're, they're, they're sins that God will not let you live in heaven. They're going to be in hell. There is nothing that defiles that enters into heaven. Those are sins against God. These are the smallest matters of this life. These are things that you would take to court. You don't take someone to court for idolatry. What are you going to do? Who's going to plead for you? What attorney is going to take your case to accuse someone of idolatry in a court of our land? It's the, it's the things of this life. Are you all, I hope you're with me. Amen. And you know what the Bible calls them? The smallest matters. The church does judge in the smallest matters. Look at Matthew 18. And those smallest matters are things that pertain to this life. Matthew 18. We're dividing sin between large and small. Large sins are those against God and His Word. Small sins are those against your neighbor. Small sins against a man. Matthew eighteen fifteen. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Now I want you to notice, brethren, this is not difficult. Little children can be taught this. This is not against God. It doesn't say, moreover, if a wicked sinner sins against the Most High God, it says, if thy brother shall trespass against thee. Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. The whole matter can be taken care of between two men. Because it didn't involve any of those commandments thou shalt not given by God and his law. Right. You might have opened your car door a little too hastily out in the church parking lot when you were leaving from a service and nicked your neighbor's car. That's the kind of issue we're talking about. The smallest matters. It's one brother against another. 
And what do we do with things like this? What if that brother repents? You're to forgive him. What if he does it again that day at the evening service, nicks your car again, and he repents? You're to forgive him. And Peter would say, Lord, about seven times I'm going to run out of forgiveness. And Jesus said, no, till 70 times seven. And that's in the rest of this chapter right here. You can just read it in the next few verses. These are, do you think God wants us to do that with sins against him? Do you think Phinehas should have stood there and said, well, this is only the first event. I'm going to start keeping track of this guy that's over there kicking around that tent with that Moabite woman. And when it reaches 491, then I'll take judge. Come on, we're dividing. See, the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. There are small matters between men. There are large matters against God. That was 2 Timothy 2, 15. Do you know when small matters like this come up, the best way to handle them is? Proverbs nineteen eleven. The discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. What kind of a transgression is it glorious to pass over? Small. small. Do you think Phinehas would have been more glorious by passing over no. the man in his tent? No. He did the right thing because that was a sin against God. Next division. Sins are either private or they're public. Private sins. Jesus said, I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. That's a very private sin. I dare say that everyone in here above the age of 10 has committed it more than once. But it's private, even though it's a thou shalt not from the Most High God, but it's private. There's no, there's nothing taught anywhere on how to deal with that except for that person to confess their sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Notice, that is a relationship between us and God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We don't have to tell anyone else. It remains private. In Matthew chapter 1, we read this about Joseph when he found out that Mary was expecting. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, expecting before they had come together. Then Joseph, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. His mind was, as a just man, I'm going to keep this... Her character is outstanding. I don't know what's going on. I'm going to put her away privately. I'm not going to make a public example out of her and destroy her life. He made a choice between a private way of dealing with it and a public way of dealing with it. As an individual with a fiancé who was pregnant. James 5 would tell us, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. Right. Is that public or private? Right. That's private. That's one man sinning. That's one man converting him. And when, let him know that if he is successful by the grace of God to convert that brother from the error of his way, he'll hide a multitude of sins. Do you know what that means? It never becomes public. public. Great. 
The second division in sins is, are they private or public? I've just given you several references to private matters. The, the sins of your heart, which you confess directly to God. Joseph wanting to deal with Mary in a private way. And James 5 telling us that when we see a brother sin a sin and he's in error, we can convert him privately and it's kept there privately. It's never made public. And we're blessed by hiding a multitude of sins. And it is the ultimate way. And brethren, if we had all been more diligent and more faithful in recent months, we could have had the glory of James 5, 19 and 20, and I will take the lion's share of that responsibility. But we go on, and I hope you all understand what I just told you. Amen. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, 1. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. It is reported commonly. These are words you don't want to forget. This is a public sin. Remember, a man can commit fornication in his heart. Then he can confess it to God. That's as private as it gets, right? One sinner and God. One sinner could commit fornication and a father find out about it and convert that son who might be a fornicator from the air of his way. Two would know about it and God would know about it and they would hide a multitude of sins and it would never become public. But there's another thing that can happen. It can become publicly known. Known by the majority. Known by most. And it's called of common report. It is reported commonly. And when some sin is reported commonly, then God has given very specific ways in which it's to be dealt with. I hope you're seeing that. The glory is to stop it by the grace of God and to confess it ourselves if we sin. The next level of glory is for a brother to convert that person from the air of his way and no one ever knows about it and we hide a multitude of sins and a soul is saved. Or it becomes of common report and we have to put them out as we shall study in far greater detail than right now. Right now I just want you to leave this week, leave this Sunday morning knowing that sin is divided in three different ways. First of all, it's large against God or small against man. Second, it is either private or public. One more verse, because we want two witnesses. Ephesians chapter 5, on sins that are public. See, the Apostle Paul did not have to write to the church at Corinth and say, do a little research for me. Could you check out a few more details? Could you talk to the brother? He said, it's, a, it's commonly reported. Everyone knows. Most everyone knows. It's commonly reported. Common is of general public or non-private nature. That is a matter of public talk or knowledge generally known. He said, because it's of common report, when you get together in a full assembly, here's what you're supposed to do. Period. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. The saints of God do not allow sins like fornication, uncleanness, or covetousness named among them once. When it's named, they're out. This is a, this is a corresponding passage to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Remember, if you've, if you've committed fornication or uncleanness or covetousness and you've confessed it to God, has it been named? 
No. If one person commits one of these three sins, another brother converts him from the error of his way. Has it been named among the church? No. No. It's private and it's hid, and it's hid a multitude of sins. But when it becomes generally known and it's named among a church, that church has so-and-so in it. Like the Baptist church in Arkansas that has President Clinton in it. Everyone knows about that, and everyone despises Baptists because of it. He's never been dealt with anyway for perjuring and lying that everyone in the whole country, all 265 million, know about. And it's never been dealt with. 1 Corinthians 5 and Ephesians 5 show us that there are public sins. When they're of common report, or they're being named among the congregation, then we have to deal with them in a public way different than we would otherwise. Brethren, there's one third division to make, and that is, is the party that is sinning repentant, or are they obstinate? Back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. For those that have taken geometry, or math, if you have three variables, and for each of those variables you have two choices, How many total choices do we have? How many total combinations do we have? If we've got two sides, two on a side, and two on a side, and it's too deep, what do we call that? What's two times two times two? Isn't that two cubed? We have a cube. And so I want you to have a cube in your head. A cube has how many little squares? How many little possibilities? Eight. Two times two times two is eight. For every sin, you have to answer three questions. Is it large or small? Is it public or private? Is the offender repentant or obstinate? And depending on what combination of those three variables you have, you'll have one of eight answers, and there are eight different ways to handle sin in the Word of God. You're saying, this is bizarre. You're making it sound like high school geometry. You'll see. Did you see the division between large and small as plain as the noonday sun? Did you see the division between public and private? Well, now there's either repentance or there's not. Matthew 18, verse 15, here's one of those. What kind of matters? Small or large? Small. Small. Public or private? In 15. Private. Private. Well, now we've got to answer the question, is he repentant or not? Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, sounds like a repentant brother. He'll listen and say, you're right. I ripped the cord off that jigsaw. I'll replace it. Thou hast gained thy brother. I want to tell you about a man because I want you to remember this man when we talk about sin. It's the man Zacchaeus. Jesus came into a city of Jericho and that little short runt climbed up... That little short man, if anyone's offended with runt, climbed up into a tree, a sycamore tree, because he wanted to see Jesus pass on the way. Jesus came to that tree knowing he was up there behind those leaves. And he said, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to go to your house today for for lunch. As soon as he popped down on the ground, the whole crowd began to murmur. That man was a traitor to his nation. He was a publican. He took taxes from all of them for the Roman government. And he wasn't very honest and scrupulous. He wasn't very honest about doing so. And the whole crowd began to murmur. And Zacchaeus, looking around and hearing that murmuring crowd, said to Jesus, Lord, 
Today I sell half my goods to give to the poor, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said, This day salvation has come to this house. That is repentance, brethren. That is 2 Corinthians 7.11 practiced in five minutes. Is that vehement desire? Is that great revenge? Is that zeal? I'll sell half my goods right now, give them to the poor, and if I've wronged anyone that can come forward, I'll restore fourfold. Jesus said this day salvation's come to this house, and he went and had dinner with them. I hope that everyone can hear what I just said. Repentance, by the grace of God, can be easy. But brethren, there's a big difference between repentance and obstinance. When When one stays in their sin, then you know what God thinks of that person. We read it in Psalm 68 this morning. God is going to be angry with that man and his his hairy scalp for a man who who remains obstinate in his sins and will not humble himself and repent. And so we have that third division about sin. Is the party who sinned repentant? Have they humbled themselves before God, confessed their sin, and they're willing and eager and striving to make restitution where restitution can be made and to clear themselves of the matter? Or are they not? So we have three divisions. Brethren, that leaves eight choices for how we deal with sin, and by the grace of God, we will study those eight choices in the next couple of weeks. I pray that the great God of heaven that we read about this morning, we sang about, we read about in Psalm 68, is a God that you love, that you want to serve him, and that you want to be zealous for his word like Phinehas was with a javelin. We have no more javelins. We have the word of God of the New Testament. But we're going to look at what it tells us to do. And I hope that we can be wise. I've tried to teach you this morning. This is not the subject that I would choose by, by my ordinary, by my heart right now, but it's a course that we all need. I've been a little disappointed with the questions that have been asked, but that's okay. That's what a pastor's for. I hope by the grace of God to answer every single question on what ought to be done, and to make it as plain as possible. And you know why I want to do all this? And this subject to the glory of God, so that God looks down and sees one congregation on earth where we are practicing New Testament Bible church discipline, and we're doing it faithfully. And we have a pure body, so that tonight when we come to the Lord's Supper, we observe it in a way that pleases Him, that Jesus Christ is magnified. That's why. Will you please all stand with me as we conclude this service?